Earlier this week, Prince Faisal bin Fahan Al Saud, Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia, and Hossein Amir Abdullahian, Foreign Minister of Iran, exchanged Ramadan greetings by telephone. It was a call which would have been exceedingly unlikely until really quite recently. Relations between the two countries were suspended in 2016 after Saudi Arabia executed a prominent Shia cleric, Namir Bakir al-Namir, and angry mobs in Iran responded by burning and sacking Saudi diplomatic missions in Tehran and Mashhad. But it is now all smiles, or more realistically, all forced rictus grins and awkward handshakes, but still. Saudi Arabia and Iran have agreed to restore full diplomatic relations. Embassies will be reopened. Foreign ministers will meet in person. There is even talk of a state visit to Saudi Arabia by Iran's president, Abraham Raisi. Diplomatic rapprochements are usually to be welcomed, of course, and this diplomatic rapprochement in particular raises the tantalising hope of peace on the battlefields across which Saudi Arabia and Iran have long waged a ruinous proxy war. Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. But this is nevertheless a diplomatic rapprochement between two regimes whose few points of agreement are those related to entrenched hostility to human rights, democracy, that kind of thing. Added to which the deal was mediated by China, the superpower which can be relied on not to make any squeamish interjections on such subjects. What is actually in this for Saudi Arabia, Iran and China? How does this renewed relationship redraw the regional map? And where on the spectrum, from relief to panic, should everyone else be reacting? This is The Foreign Desk. I think the Saudis have decided that the single most important thing for them is to focus on their economy, on developing their country, and that having problems with neighbours, especially neighbours who are willing to attack them with missiles is not good. And so they've gone from a confrontational approach to one where they're willing to try to see whether some sort of lowering of tensions is possible. I think it simplifies things by actually adding complexity to the region. You know, we, we were in a situation not long ago where things were pretty black and white. Right, there was a very hard Israeli Gulf alliance against Iran. There recently has been talk of war in the region. And I think the Saudis and Emiratis are following a policy of much more of, I would say, creating gray areas in the region, which lessens threats and lessens tensions. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined first of all by Sanam Vakil, Deputy Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House. Sanam, let's begin with the big question from Iran's point of view. What is in it for them? Why does Iran want to be friends with Saudi Arabia again? I think that the deal, the rapprochement, if it happens, and I think that's an important caveat, we still have two months to go for formal reconciliation to take place. If it does happen, it offers Iran a few benefits. Firstly, Iran has been beset with months of domestic protests. Those protests have led to international criticism, condemnation, and sanctions for human rights abuses, with many in the diaspora and many Western governments questioning the survivability and the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. 
So I think on first instance, Iran is showing uh, the international community that it is actually arriving at these agreement with Saudi Arabia from a position of strength. The Saudi government wouldn't be making uh, this agreement if it thought that the Iranian government was on the precipice of a revolution. Secondly, as part of the agreement, uh, the Saudi government has committed to reducing support for Iran's uh, diaspora or opposition, reducing support for diaspora-funded media channels, and that benefits Iran um, from an internal perspective, again, coming on the back of the protests. Uh, Iran is trying to put some distance between itself and those events, and so this is about uh, domestic stability as well. And I think third and finally, these protests um, do come on the back of over a year and a half of negotiations. Iran and Saudi Arabia have been meeting at least five times formally, and this has been negotiated by the Iraqis as well as the Omanis. Uh, So there have been these efforts at bridging the divide over regional issues, and this helps Iran with its uh, regional uh, stability and regional positioning in the Middle East. I just want to pick up on that caveat you introduced, if this happens. With so much ballyhoo and prestige already invested in it by all parties and indeed by China as mediator, what's the reason why it might not happen from here? Well, I think it's important to just be cautious. Saudi Arabia and Iran have had a longer history of tension than they have of goodwill and diplomatic representation. And there's a lot that could go wrong. Uh, Iran has committed to respect sovereignty in the region, committed to supporting the Saudi peace efforts in Yemen, uh, to withdraw support from the Houthi group in North Yemen. Uh, So maybe uh, Iran will not be able to restrain the Houthis or restrain their engagement in Yemen. And maybe the Houthis are not going to be as compliant as many in the international community or in Riyadh are expecting. So there are some spanners that could delay the process. But you're quite right that the optics and the international celebration of this rapprochement would make it quite difficult to walk back from. Is there also a potential difficulty in that it might be quite a tough sell to the Iranian public? Like all tyrannies, really, the Iranian regime has always stoked fears of the enemy without, whether it's the United States, the United Kingdom, or indeed Saudi Arabia. Is it the kind of thing that might precipitate an amount of concern and grumbling among the Iranian public? I don't think so. Actually, you know, I I wouldn't just say that it's the Iranian regime that sort of uses uh, regional tensions to stoke fears. I think the Saudi regime has as well. And and in fact, Mohammed bin Salman, at the height of tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, you know, referred to Iran's supreme leader as a leader akin to Hitler. So tensions were high on both sides. But I think that for the Iranian regime, this uh, deal showcases their flexibility and it showcases their willingness to reduce tensions in the Persian Gulf, which could provide economic benefits, it would sort of break the uh, GCC anti-Iran bloc very formally. If you recall, during the maximum pressure campaign that was begun under President Trump in 2018, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain supported the US withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement and supported the maximum pressure sanctions and containment of the Islamic Republic. And what we've seen over the past few years is slowly, slowly, um, the UAE was the first country 
to resume private negotiations with the Iranians. They returned their ambassador last August to Tehran. Saudi Arabia has been following in those footsteps, if you will, finally arriving at a, a deal just recently, and Bahrain is expected to follow suit. So this breaks Gulf isolation of Iran and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia has committed to investing in Iran's economy, which is very important because sanctions are still very heavily impacting Iran's economy and tensions with the West over its accelerating nuclear program also are continuing. Looked at that way, does this therefore maybe seem like not so much a seismic redrawing of the regional framework as more of a natural evolution from the restorations of relations we saw last year between Iran and Kuwait and Iran and the United Arab Emirates? I think that this builds on a pattern of de-escalation that we've witnessed across the region over the past two years. If you recall, we've seen, obviously, the Abraham Accords normalization agreements um, that saw greater economic and political engagement and integration of Israel into the region. We've seen the UAE and Saudi de-escalate tensions with Turkey. Egypt, for example, is currently looking to follow suit in that way. They de-escalated tensions with Iran. So there's just a broader pattern of de-escalation, perhaps coming after a period of, of regional instability, COVID, reprioritization of interests uh, towards economic issues. And I think the bigger sort of looming issue is the role of the United States in the region. The Biden administration has continued the U.S. reorientation towards geopolitical competition, and this has led to less direct investment in managing conflict and regional stability in the Middle East. Sanam, thank you. That was Sanam Vakil of Chatham House. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24, and let's now see if we can figure out what is in this for Saudi Arabia. Joining me now from Princeton is Bernard Heichel, Professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. Bernard is also the author of Saudi Arabia in Transition, Insights on Social, Political, Economic and Religious Change. First of all, this process of rapprochement between Tehran and Riyadh, do we know how long this has been going on? So firstly, I'm not sure I would call it a rapprochement. I think it's very much a in-test or in-trial phase to see whether both sides, but in particular whether Iran will stop some of its proxy militias from firing missiles and drones at Saudi Arabia. I think the Saudis have decided that the single most important thing for them is to focus on their economy, on developing their country, and that having problems with neighbors, especially neighbors who are willing to attack them with missiles, is not good. And so they've gone from a confrontational approach, in particular in Yemen, and towards Iran, to one where they're willing to try to see whether some sort of detente, you know, some sort of lowering of tensions is possible, and to include and bring China on board, because China has particular leverage on the Iranians. This began, I think, in October, well before President Xi visited Riyadh in December. Well, on that thought of detente and reducing tensions, lowering temperature, etc., is there 
there a, a convergence of interests between Riyadh and Tehran? Because just as we've seen in the last year or so, Iran restoring ties with Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates, we've also seen Saudi Arabia restoring its ties with Turkey. Do they both at least agree that they want less disagreement in the region? They want different things. So mm. the Saudis want to get on with the business of building up their country. And if you visit Saudi Arabia, you'll see there's a furious sort of pace of building, you know, there are cranes everywhere. It's one enormous building site. So the Saudis want to focus on that. The Iranians, I think, have slightly different interests. They are under tremendous pressure, both domestically because of the demonstrations and dissent movements. They're under sanctions pressure. Their economy is in a tailspin. Their currency is also in a tailspin. So they want, I think, some sort of relief economically. I'm not sure that the Iranians have given up on what they call the axis of resistance, the leadership of the kind of movements and states that are opposed to what they call Western imperialism, American domination of the region. The Saudis are not bothered by America's domination of the regions. The Iranians are. But is there nevertheless a thing of Saudi Arabia hoping to forestall any open conflict between Iran and anybody else? Because almost by definition, in any kind of conflict between Iran and Israel, Iran and the United States, Saudi Arabia would be, well, pretty much literally in the middle of it. Yes. I mean, and the Iranians have in the past threatened and indeed have attacked Saudi oil installations. And I think what the Saudis are trying to do is try to distance themselves from a potential Israeli attack by protecting themselves from Iranian retaliation. The biggest fear that Saudi Arabia has is Iranian attack on their facilities and also on their desalination facilities. You must remember that countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia rely very heavily on desalinated water. And if any of those installations are attacked, those countries would literally sort of die of thirst. So one of the achievements potentially of disagreement with the Iranians is to say to them, that is the Saudis saying to them, look, if the Israelis attack you, please don't take it out on us. <laughs> You've said that Saudi Arabia has been historically unconcerned with the American domination of the region. But nevertheless, is there the beginnings here, especially when we talk about China's role in this, of Saudi Arabia maybe trying to orient itself away from the West slightly and pursue some sort of doctrine of strategic autonomy? So the Saudis have been quite upset with the Americans, with American policies for at least two decades now, beginning with the invasion of Iraq that happened in 2003. So the Saudis were against that invasion. They knew then that the Iranians would dominate Iraq and told the Americans this. Nonetheless, they ultimately supported the American invasion because they had to. Then they were upset with the Americans for abandoning President Mubarak as they saw it during the Arab Spring events in 2010-11. And then they also were upset with the Americans, specifically President Obama, for negotiating the nuclear deal with the Iranians, which is known by its acronym JCPOA, as well as this idea of pivoting East, that the Americans were going to abandon the Middle East and pivot towards China. And also they've been upset with President Trump because when the Iranians attacked Saudi Arabia in September of 2019, the Americans did nothing. So the Saudis feel very strongly, and I think this is shared, by the way, in the United Arab Emirates, that the Americans are not reliable guarantors of the security of the Persian Gulf. 
and of their regimes and their countries. So they're pursuing a hedging strategy, sort of putting some chips on a few other superpowers, China being the principal one, but also developing stronger ties with the French, with the British, when it comes to weapons purchases, in order to diversify some of their potential allies who could help them defend themselves. But is there any possibility if this agreement sticks, if the, well, friendship may be too strong a word, but if this agreement to put up with each other holds, that the Saudis could actually prove useful interlocutors between Iran and the West, especially if there is any attempt to revive the nuclear deal? I'm not sure I can see the Saudis as being interlocutors. I think, you know, there are lots of other interlocutors between Iran and the West, the Omanis, for instance, Mm. you know, the Iraqis. But my sense is that in two months, they will reopen embassies, you know, and they will give Hajj visas, by the way, to Iranian pilgrims who have not been able to go to Saudi Arabia on pilgrimage. So these are very important steps that will also be followed up with two very important sort of unstated conditions in the agreement. The first is that the Houthis of Yemen will stop attacking Saudi Arabia. And the second is that in return for that, the Saudis will tone down some of the media attacks on Iran, in particular by one station based in London called Iran International, over which Saudi Arabia has considerable influence. You know, we'll see small baby steps being taken by both sides, but nothing that will lead to, you know, a great sort of warm relationship at all. Bernard, thank you. That was Professor Bernard Heichel of Princeton University. His book, Saudi Arabia in Transition, is available in paperback. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and finally on today's show for a look at the wider regional implications of the apparent Saudi-Iran rapprochement. I'm joined now by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House here in London. And joining us from Paris is Vali Nasir, former US State Department advisor and Professor of Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Vali, first of all, prior to this apparent reconciliation, there has been a conventional wisdom that there has been this proxy war occurring between Iran and Saudi Arabia, raging across Yemen, Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. Is that basically the case or has that always been a somewhat simplistic way of looking at it? I do think there has been a proxy engagement between them in Lebanon, in Syria, at one point in Afghanistan and Pakistan in Iraq, and most recently, obviously, in Yemen. So it's been an ongoing set of tensions between them. At points, it actually spilled over, for instance, when the Iranians attacked Saudi oil facilities in 2019. So the two have not gone to war with one another militarily, but they have been very clear adversaries in recent years. So, Yossi, and this is always an entertainingly stupid question to put about the Middle East, is this basically good? Are we on the brink of a dawn of a, a new peace? Well, I won't take it that far. The Middle East always is on the verge of some dawn, but some dawns are better than others. I think it's a positive development. I think everything that diffuses the tension between two major powers within the region, it's a good sign. It might diffuse the situation in Yemen, which I think this is one of the motivations for Saudi Arabia, among others, to stop it. As I mentioned earlier, the attack on the oil facilities, the refineries, it stopped 50% of production. It's good. 
But again, there are other countries that might look at it, especially Israel with great suspicion. What is happening now? Because the Israelis were counting their chickens saying, oh, it's all good. All the Gulf is on our side. And everyone said Iran is the big bad wolf in the region. And as a result, we built a coalition against Iran. And now there seems to be, it's not a simple. And I think one of the things always to remember in the Middle East, there are multi-tiered and very complex system of alliances, and they can change very quickly. Well, on that thought, Vali, do you think this does simplify anything, or does it just make it complicated in a different way? I think it simplifies things by actually adding complexity to the region. And to Yossi's point is that, you know, we, we were in a situation not long ago where things were pretty black and white. Right. There was a very hard Israeli Gulf alliance against Iran. There recently has been talk of war in the region. And even if you went further back, Saudis also had problems with Turkey for a while, as did Israel, and then they had problems with Qatar. And I think the Saudis and Emiratis are following a policy of much more of, I would say, creating gray areas in the region, which lessens threats and lessens tensions. And I think where they may look at this differently from Israel is that Israeli economy, Israel's economic prosperity is not contingent on conflict with Iran. If the Middle East came to a war, then, you know, Abu Dhabi is only 90 miles from the Iranian shore. I mean, all of these ideas that the Gulf countries have about aggressive development, et cetera, would not necessarily survive a war. So to Yossi's point, I wouldn't say this is peace. By no means, I think where things are much better in the region is that we've moved back from war, which would have been quite difficult at this time, given that Europe and the United States are focused on Ukraine. They really don't have a bandwidth to open a third front in the Middle East. And I think to that extent, the region has become more complicated. But that complexity, as I said, that the Saudis and Emiratis have created by having relations with Turkey, with Israel, with Iran, reaching out to Assad in in Syria, trying to build ties with the Iraqi government. You know, all of these are added complexity to the region, but at the same time, it simplifies the situation because we're not going to be facing a war, which then would have put the region in a very different place. I want to talk a bit about a couple of those proxy conflicts that we identified. Yossi, Yemen in particular has been the focus of a lot of discussion since this rapprochement was announced. Is it possible that it's as simple as both Iran and Saudi Arabia looking at the situation from a detached perspective and admitting to each other and themselves that between us we have destroyed a country and it has accomplished absolutely nothing and continuing this is getting neither of us anywhere. Yeah, I think the point is it's a complete illusion to think that anyone can win the war in Yemen. And the problems in Yemen go back decades. And what they found is a place for them to pen out their own conflict or to flex their muscles there. And actually what we see with this agreement, and this goes to, I think, to Bali's point, the complexity that simplifies actually that by having this agreement is that it shows that the region is not as rigid as some people look at it from the outside, think about. And there is way more rationality with that we attribute sometimes to the Middle East. You know, many people observer from the outside look at it and say, oh, it's about religion, it's about monarchies, it's rigid, the way they're thinking there. And actually what we see with this agreement, no, actually countries, 
in a very real politics sort of way, identify their interest and are capable. And let's also remember there was a third party mediator in this agreement, China. So with the rights mediation, it can be helped to avoid conflict. And this is the including in Yemen and probably lead to diffusion of conflicts in other places in the region. Other conflicts which might be thought of in in that respect very much include Iraq. And Vali, obviously, people have been talking a lot recently about the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. And one of the upshots of that, of course, was that it substantially delivered Iraq into the hands of the Iranians, who were the great victors, ironically, of that conflict. They saw their adversary, Saddam Hussein, toppled, and Iraq left right there for them to turn it into an Iranian client state. Does this change anything? Does it perhaps even solidify the Iranian presence inside Iraq? I don't think the Iranian presence inside Iraq was ever in jeopardy. Unless something really tumultuous happens in Iraq, the current Shiite control of the country ultimately has deep ties to Iran, needs Iran, and it's not going anywhere. I think where it makes a difference is that if there is at least some degree of agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, that they're not going to use Iraq as a proxy place to fight one another, then, you know, it opens all sorts of possibilities for Iraq to sort of develop towards greater stability. The same goes with Syria. Iranians are a big presence in Syria. I don't think Bashar Assad is going to get a divorce from Iran anytime soon after the Iranians help save his neck. But Bashar Assad also wants to be part of the Arab world, wants Saudi UAE money to rebuild the country. And again, if Iran and Saudi Arabia are not fighting over Syria, it opens certain possibilities. I just would give one example historically. It's good to keep in mind that once upon a time in early 1990s, Iran and Saudi Arabia made an agreement, Iran obviously indirectly, over ending the civil war in Lebanon, the famous Taif agreement. Mm. I think both sides understood that neither one is going to win everything they want. But an agreement that ends the war, brings conflict, puts some rules of the game, rules of the road on the ground, is better for both sides. And the Taif agreement pretty much has helped in Lebanon. Obviously, it's not a basis for a prosperous, democratic, stable Lebanon, but we haven't had civil war either. So it is possible to think that Iran and Saudi Arabia could arrive at some things they agree on in Iraq and Syria, in Yemen. And step by step, that at least they won't use these countries to tear each other apart. Yossi, at which point we should discuss the interlocutor here, i.e. China. They're following up on this. They are planning to host an Arab-Iranian summit in Beijing later this year. What's the angle for China here? Is it just that it's easier for them to build and develop and profit from an orderly and peaceful Middle East? I think we hear more and more how the United States withdraws from the Middle East and then China enters into the Middle East. There is in other places, we saw with Xi Jinping visits to Russia and trying to resolve or contribute to the situation there in one way or another. I think this is a bit oversimplistic view of this. China will always intervene in the Middle East in a very limited way. They are not going to intervene military. They are not going to involve even sending weapons to the Middle East. But they want to use more and more soft power. And that's put them in a position that they can be the peacemakers in the region. So from, especially after Xi Jinping won the third and unprecedented 
term as China's leader, I think he would like to play this role internationally. But on this sense, what they've done between the Iranian and, and the Saudis is a great achievement. But first and foremost, is because both Riyadh and Tehran were very much interested in this, as is the basis of any good negotiation. Vali, there's another, I guess, somewhat concerning aspect to a lot of the actual people of the Middle East and indeed to the rest of the world if China becomes the interlocutor of choice, because you can see that one of the things about dealing with Beijing that might appeal to both Riyadh and Tehran is that they know that they're not going to get yelled at about human rights by China. Is there a concern that the nature of this deal, the way in which it was done, shores up dictatorships like the ones in South Saudi Arabia and Tehran? I don't think that's the dimension right now, because as Yossi said, you know, China is not the most important player. Iran doesn't have many relations with Europe and the United States, but Saudi Arabia definitely does. And once Xi Jinping got involved, then, you know, the right wing in Iran, that's the supreme leader, revolutionary guard, the people who are most likely to violate the deal, basically had to toe the line. I mean, they're not going, given that how much Iran depends on China these days, the only way that you're going to keep Iran's feet to the fire on a deal is through China being there, not Europeans, not anybody that Iran could easily feel comfortable violating the deal with, but the, with the Chinese. And the Saudis essentially wanted the Chinese to play this role. And why would the Chinese agree to the Saudis is because if they want more energy deals from Saudi Arabia, if they want... Saudi Arabia to resist decoupling from China with Washington if they want Huawei in Saudi Arabia. They had to basically do this favor for the, for the Saudis. So in a way, unlike other times when the Chinese insert themselves in, here actually the countries in the region understood that China can play this role. I do not believe it was Xi Jinping that was pushing the two sides to do this. I think Mohammed bin Salman essentially asked them that if he wants to build these relations with the Gulf, he needs to solve a big security problem with the Gulf, which is Iranians have said they're willing to do these things. Uh, now your job is to make sure that they actually do it. Fali Nasir and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you very much for joining us on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.